0: Welcome to the 411 on a GLP-1. My name is Dr. James Gavin, and I'm clinical professor of medicine at Emory University, and I also serve as chief medical officer for Healing Our Village in Atlanta, Georgia. This program is intended for clinicians. The information presented in this podcast is aligned with the views and opinions of the speakers and is sponsored by Novo Nordisk. This podcast is not to be used as medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. In this podcast, we are going to discuss issues surrounding therapeutic inertia in the treatment of type 2 diabetes and review the efficacy and safety of a GLP-1 receptor agonist, including specifics from a head-to-head clinical trial comparing a GLP-1 receptor agonist with a DPP-4 inhibitor. I am pleased to be joined today by Drs. Steve Vicalis and Jody Strong. Steve, please introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Thank you, Jim. Thank you all for having me. I am a family practice physician. I'm located in Charlotte, North Carolina region, actually just 12 miles west in a town called Gastonia, where I'm the lead physician. I'm part of a multi-specialty group where we have everything from pediatricians to neurosurgeons. It's a subsidiary of Caramont Regional Medical Center. And during my 25 years there, I spent the first half of that as an inpatient and outpatient physician. And now, in the last half of that 25 years, I've been exclusively working as an outpatient physician, and we deal with what we call the big three. That is diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. And of course, all the other comorbidities that come along with it. I also was one of the editors for the ADA magazine, Clinical Diabetes, for a three-year stint.
0: Thank you, Steve. Jody.
2: Hi. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, everybody. I'm Jody Strong. I have a doctorate of nursing practice. I specialize in diabetes, exclusively overseeing a patient practice with over 3,500 patients. I am located in central Wisconsin. I work for a healthcare organization called Aspirus Medical Group. We also are a multi-specialty group with multiple primary care providers from both family practice and internal medicine, as well as a number of specialists. Similar to Steve, I see a number of patients, not only with diabetes, but also morbid obesity and multiple other comorbid conditions. We specialize in my department specifically in managing the diabetes and comorbid conditions that come along with it.
0: It's a pleasure to share this podcast with you, and I thank you both for being here with me. Before we start, let's break down the differences between clinical inertia and therapeutic inertia. Since more people are familiar with the term clinical inertia, let's start with the definition of clinical inertia in the treatment of type 2 diabetes, since it remains a prevalent issue in clinical practice and leads to worse clinical outcomes. Steve, would you define clinical inertia and therapeutic inertia for us?
1: Absolutely. So, clinical inertia was originally defined in 2001 as the failure of a healthcare provider to initiate or intensify therapy when indicated. However, the definition continues to evolve and the definition of clinical inertia that has been recently proposed is when there are implicit or explicit guidelines that exist that the medical professional is aware of the guidelines and believes that the guidelines apply to the patient and has the resources to apply those guidelines, but still does not apply the recommendations from those guidelines to the patient. In other words, not following the guidelines in a timely fashion despite being aware of them and having the means to do so. However, some feel the term clinical inertia implies that the clinician's failure is to blame for not adjusting therapy when necessary. And that does not take into account factors beyond the clinician's control. And we know there are many, such as the patient or healthcare system factors. Therefore, it has been proposed to us the term therapeutic inertia instead. For the purposes of this podcast, however, we will use the term therapeutic inertia and keep in mind that it is not a problem that rests on clinicians' shoulders alone.
0: Thank you, Steve, for that excellent explanation. Jody, how common is therapeutic inertia in the treatment of patients with type 2 diabetes in the US?
2: Well, Jim, it may be more common than most clinicians think. The American Diabetes Association Standards of Medical Care in Diabetes recommend reassessing and modifying treatment every three to six months to help avoid therapeutic inertia and for patients not reaching their treatment goals. Treatment intensification should not be delayed. Currently, the ADA recommends an A1C goal of less than 7% without significant hypoglycemia for most non-pregnant adults. Similarly, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology and American College of Endocrinology consensus statement recommend that all patients with type 2 diabetes be monitored to make sure that glycemic goals are achieved and maintained. These guidelines also remind us that lifestyle therapy should be intensified alongside anti-hyperglycemic medication and therapy can be de-intensified when control targets are hit. ACE recommends an A1c of 6.5% or lower if it can be achieved without significant hypoglycemia or other adverse effects of treatment. However, we have statistics from a large real-world data set based on electronic health records that included over 7,000 patients with type 2 diabetes who had an A1c of 7% or greater despite being on a stable regimen of two oral antihyperglycemic medications for at least six months. In the following six months, which is beyond the recommended timeframe for treatment adjustment, nearly two-thirds of these patients did not have their antihyperglycemic therapy intensified. Even more concerning is that more than half of these patients with an A1c between 8 and 9% and nearly half of patients with an A1c of 9% or higher did not have their therapy intensified.
0: Wow those data are concerning. You mentioned de-intensification, and I want to comment on that because this aspect of therapeutic inertia is often overlooked, but it is an important point since it is based on the concept of the appropriate type and intensity of treatment to achieve and maintain desired treatment goals for the individual patient. For example, for older patients with type 2 diabetes, overtreatment, or treatment with a product where the potential harm outweighs the potential benefits, can lead to episodes of severe hypoglycemia. So it is important to remember that the therapeutic inertia applies to not only intensification of treatment, but also to situations of overtreatment, where medication may need to be de intensified in patients if their therapy is too aggressive. So, both ADA and ACE recommend close, regular monitoring of patients to ensure treatment goals are met. And they also recommend adjustments in therapy be made as needed. But there is a disconnect between these recommendations and what we see in real-world practice, as we've already discussed. The question is why? As mentioned earlier, the factors that contribute to therapeutic inertia can be categorized as patient, clinician, and health system related. Jody, could you talk to us about some of the patient related factors that contribute to therapeutic inertia?
2: Well, Jim, some patient factors that can lead to therapeutic inertia include but are not limited to denial regarding the seriousness of their disease, a sense of failure, low health literacy, and concerns about being on too many medications or that their therapeutic regimen is or will become too complex. We know that fear of side effects such as hypoglycemia and weight gain is commonly expressed by patients, and rightfully so, especially with certain therapies. Fear of injections is also a barrier that is well documented. Now, to be clear, this is not a complete list of all patient barriers associated with therapeutic inertia, but should give you a quick snapshot of what patients could be up against.
0: Thanks. Steve, what about clinician-related factors?
1: So, a potential clinician-related barrier is the evolving number of glycemic management options available to them. Over the past 10 years, the therapeutic options for type 2 diabetes have significantly increased, I mean, that's a really good thing, but given the rapid development of these novel agents, it is not surprising that some medical professionals feel overwhelmed by the number of choices. In fact, in a survey of 600 physicians, 49% of these physicians indicated that not being able to stay current with the advances in diabetes therapy was one of their primary challenges. It's crucial that medical professionals are aware of new treatments for type two diabetes as well as the importance of timely intensification. Thus, some of the healthcare professional related factors include insufficient knowledge of the guidelines and up-to-date scientific evidence, lack of knowledge with new therapies, fear of side effects, and difficulty managing said side effects. Some clinicians may also overestimate the level of care that is being provided, and in turn underestimate the number of patients not at target typically in their own practice. Like Jody mentioned, this is not a comprehensive list of every clinician-related factor, but it is important to keep in mind that therapeutic inertia is multifactorial, and there is no single solution to this problem.
0: Thanks, Steve. You know, one thing I find interesting is the observation that therapeutic inertia does not appear to manifest itself in clinical trials. We know that protocols in clinical trials are highly regimented, and there is very little ambiguity regarding treatment intensification. In addition, the high number of visits in these trials provides clinicians more time to spend with patients to reinforce the importance of escalating therapy, or less often, de-escalating therapy, troubleshoot problems, and reinforce the patients the seriousness of their disease.
2: Jim, I'm glad you brought that up because lack of time and resources is a frequently cited health system-related barrier to escalating type 2 diabetes therapy appropriately. The strict monitoring of patients in clinical trial is not feasible in most real-world practices because clinicians have limited time to spend with patients and visits can easily be taken over by other patient concerns. And this has been shown. There was a study that looked at the relationship between escalating therapy in patients with type two diabetes and elevated A1C and the number of other concerns brought up by patients during their visits. They found that as the number of patient concerns increased, the likelihood of treatment intensification decreased.
0: You make a great point, Jody. I would also like to add that access to care and medication costs continue to be barriers for patients, as well as clinicians and the healthcare system. Now, since this issue of therapeutic inertia is so commonplace and plagues all of us, no matter what type or size of practice we might have, it is something that all of us have to be sensitive to and prepared to make accommodations for. To that end, Steve, what systems do you have in place to mitigate therapeutic inertia in your practice?
1: Well, although it wasn't intended for this purpose, with the advent of electronic medical records, we can now look at quality metrics. And one of them, as most clinicians are aware, is looking at A1C values. However, the EMR that we have, the A1C goals for those who have Medicare patients is less than 9%. So you have to do a deeper dive into all your patients, maybe having Other metrics for less than 8% or those who are hovering around 7% and are at risk for hypoglycemia. So you can de-intensify as well as intensify when needed. And of course, probably the best thing we do is that we review the manual from the ADA, their guideline that comes out every January. That is chock full of new recommendations based on therapeutic novel agents. And of course, just mentoring students residents, junior physicians, facilitates regular discussions regarding what the goals are for these complex patients.
0: What about you, Jody? What about your patients and your practice?
2: Very similar to Steve's response, we use the ADA guidelines and even like to print off the medication algorithms to bring in with patients to show them. What are you currently taking? Where's your A1C at? What concerns do you as patients and we as clinicians have together to help formulate what is the next best decision and where we go with your therapy based on all this data? We also hold forms for our providers so that our primary care providers are much more comfortable with the guidelines and why these recommendations for certain therapies are made above other therapies. For example, obviously, we keep an open door mentality in our department, so our educators and I are Open if providers have questions as to what to do next with a complex patient who may not be able to see me for a couple of months or who has not yet been referred to our department. We really are making sure that diabetes is in that primary care world. So it's really about making sure that everyone knows their job and teaching them and reteaching them the guidelines.
0: That's excellent. It sounds to me like In both instances, what you are highlighting is that you have to really have careful and regular monitoring of quality metrics to know who stands where, with the A1C being just one of those metrics. That you need to really review the guidelines and then maybe take advantage of the added benefit of having frequent discussions with your colleagues and trainees to ensure that everybody is on the same page regarding the when, the why, and the how of treatment intensification. Does that sound fair?
2: Absolutely.
1: I think you summarize it nicely, and that's what we have to continue to do. It's an ever-changing game when it comes to the management of patients with type 2 diabetes.
0: Steve, can you tell us When the guidelines recommend using a GLP-1 receptor agonist in the type 2 diabetes treatment paradigm?
1: Thank you, Jim. According to the ACE consensus statement, a GLP-1 receptor agonist is a preferred agent for use as monotherapy in addition to lifestyle therapy in patients who do not tolerate or who have a contraindication to metformin use. It is a preferred agent for use with metformin as dual or triple therapy In the appropriate patients for additional glycemic control if it hasn't been achieved after three months. The ADA standards of care support therapy using a GLP-1 receptor agonist as an option for patients not reaching their A1C target on metformin and lifestyle modification including those with a compelling need to minimize hypoglycemia and address weight concerns.
3: Before we start our discussion, we'd like to first talk to you about the first and only oral GLP-1 receptor agonist, rebelsis, also known as semaglutide, tablet 7 mg or 14 mg. Rebelsis is indicated as an adjunct to diet and exercise to improve glycemic control in adults with type 2 diabetes. Rebelsis has not been studied in patients with a history of pancreatitis. Consider other antidiabetic therapies in patients with a history of pancreatitis. Rebelsis is not indicated for use in patients with type 1 diabetes. Now, let's go through the important safety information for Rebelsis, the boxed warning that accompanies Rebelsis talks about the potential risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. In rodents, semaglutide causes dose-dependent and treatment-duration-dependent thyroid C-cell tumors at clinically relevant exposures. It is unknown whether rebelsis causes thyroid C-cell tumors, including medullary thyroid carcinoma, or MTC, in humans, as human relevance of semaglutide-induced rodent thyroid C-cell tumors has not been determined. Rebelsis is contraindicated in patients with a personal or family history of MTC and in patients with multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2, or MEN2. Counsel patients regarding the potential risk for MTC with the use of rebelsis and inform them of symptoms of thyroid tumors, for example, a mass in the neck, dysphagia, dyspnea, persistent hoarseness. Routine monitoring of serum calcitonin or using thyroid ultrasound is of uncertain value for early detection of MTC in patients treated with rebelsis. Rebelsis is contraindicated in patients with a personal or family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma, or MTC, or in patients with multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome type 2 or MEN2, and in patients with a prior, serious hypersensitivity reaction to semaglutide or to any of the excipients in rebelsis. Serious hypersensitivity reactions, including anaphylaxis and angioedema, have been reported with rebelsis. Warnings and Precautions Risk of Thyroid C-Cell Tumors Patients should be further evaluated if serum calcitonin is measured and found to be elevated or thyroid nodules are noted on physical examination or neck imaging. Pancreatitis has been reported in clinical trials. Observe patients carefully for signs and symptoms of pancreatitis, including persistent severe abdominal pain, sometimes radiating to the back and which may or may not be accompanied by vomiting. If pancreatitis is suspected, discontinue rebelsis and initiate appropriate management. If confirmed, do not restart rebelsis. Diabetic Retinopathy Complications In a pooled analysis of glycemic control trials with Rebelsis, patients reported diabetic retinopathy-related adverse reactions during the trial, 4.2% with Rebelsis and 3.8% with Comparator. In a two-year trial with semaglutide injection involving patients with type 2 diabetes and high cardiovascular risk, more events of diabetic retinopathy complications occurred in patients treated with semaglutide injection at 3.0% compared to placebo at 1.8%. The absolute risk increase for diabetic retinopathy complications was larger among patients with a history of diabetic retinopathy at baseline than among patients with. Without a known history of diabetic retinopathy, rapid improvement in glucose control has been associated with a temporary worsening of diabetic retinopathy. Patients with a history of diabetic retinopathy should be monitored for progression of diabetic retinopathy. Hypoglycemia Patients receiving rebelsis in combination with an insulin secretagogue, for example, sulfonylurea, or insulin, may have an increased risk of hypoglycemia, including severe hypoglycemia. Inform patients using these concomitant medications of the risk of hypoglycemia and educate them on the signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia. Acute Kidney Injury There have been post-marketing reports of acute kidney injury and worsening of chronic renal failure, which may sometimes require hemodialysis, in patients treated with GLP-1 receptor agonists, including semaglutide. Some of these events have been reported in patients without known underlying renal disease. A majority of the reported events occurred in patients who had experienced nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or dehydration. Monitor renal function when initiating or escalating doses of rebelsis in patients reporting severe adverse gastrointestinal reactions. Hypersensitivity. Serious hypersensitivity reactions, for example, anaphylaxis and angioedema, have been reported in patients treated with rebelsis. If hypersensitivity reactions occur, discontinue use of rebelsis, treat promptly per standard of care, and monitor until signs and symptoms resolve. Use caution in a patient with a history of angioedema or anaphylaxis with another GLP-1 receptor agonist. Acute Gallbladder Disease Acute events of gallbladder disease such as cholelithiasis or cholecystitis have been reported in GLP-1 receptor agonist trials and post-marketing. In placebo-controlled trials, cholelithiasis was reported in 1% of patients treated with Rebelsis 7 mg. Cholelithiasis was not reported in Rebelsis 14 mg or placebo-treated patients. If cholelithiasis is suspected, gallbladder studies and appropriate clinical follow-up are indicated. Adverse Reactions Most common adverse reactions, incidents greater than or equal to 5%, are nausea, abdominal pain, diarrhea, decreased appetite, vomiting, and constipation. Drug Interactions Rebelsis stimulates insulin release in the presence of elevated blood glucose concentrations. When initiating rebelsis, consider reducing the dose of concomitantly administered insulin secretagogue, such as sulfonylureas or insulin, to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia. Rebelsis delays gastric emptying and has the potential to impact the absorption of other oral medications. Closely follow Rebelsis administration instructions when co-administering with other oral medications and consider increased monitoring for medications with a narrow therapeutic index, such as levothyroxine. Use in Specific Populations Pregnancy. Available data with rebelsis are not sufficient to determine a drug-associated risk for major birth defects, miscarriage, or other adverse maternal or fetal outcomes. Based on animal reproduction studies, there may be risks to the fetus from exposure to rebelsis. Use only if the potential benefit justifies the potential risk to the fetus. Lactation. There are no data on the presence of semaglutide in human milk, the effects on the breastfed infant, or the effects on milk production. Because of the unknown potential for serious adverse reactions in the breastfed infant due to the possible accumulation of salcaprizate sodium, or SNAC, an absorption enhancer in rebelsis from breastfeeding, and because there are alternative formulations of semaglutide that can be used during lactation, advise patients that breastfeeding is not recommended during treatment with rebelsis. Discontinue rebelsis in women at least two months before a planned pregnancy due to the long wash out period for semaglutide. Pediatric use. Safety and effectiveness of Rebelsis have not been established in pediatric patients. For more information and to access the Rebelsis prescribing information, including boxed warning, please visit rebelsispro.com or see your Novo Nordisk representative. Now,
0: let's get into the details of the clinical trial that assessed the efficacy and safety of Rebelsis versus Junuvia, giving us a set of study results that provide insights regarding treatment selection for patients in need of therapy intensification. Pioneer 3 was a 26-week, randomized, double-blind, double-dummy, phase 3A clinical trial that included 1864 patients conducted at 206 sites in 14 countries. Steve, can you set up the trial design for us?
1: Absolutely, I'd be happy to. First, to be included in the study, patients with type 2 diabetes need to have a baseline A1C of at least 7 upwards to 10.5% and be on a stable dose of metformin with or without a sulfonylurea. Patients who were excluded from the trial if they were treated with medication for diabetes or obesity within 90 days of screening, other than metformin, safonorrhea, or short-term insulin, which was less than 14 days, or had a history of pancreatitis, renal impairment, proliferative retinopathy, or maculopathy requiring acute treatment. Patients were randomized to rebelsis once daily, three milligrams, seven milligrams, or 14 milligrams, or to genuvia, at the maximum dose 100 milligrams once daily. Rebelsus was initiated with a three milligram once daily for four weeks, then increased to seven milligrams once daily, and after an additional four weeks to 14 milligrams once daily until the randomized dose was achieved. Genuvia was initiated and maintained at 100 milligrams once daily from the first day until the end of the trial.
0: So the primary endpoint in this study was the change in A1C from baseline to week 26. A key secondary endpoint in this study was change in body weight from baseline to week 26. Finally, the proportion of patients achieving an A1C less than 7% at week 26 was also measured as a secondary endpoint. Steve, can you describe the baseline characteristics?
1: Sure. The demographics and baseline disease characteristics were relatively similar across all treatment groups. Overall, the mean age of the participants was 58 years old with the baseline mean A1C of 8.3% and a mean duration of diabetes of 8.6 years. So these were not patients new to diabetes. They had this condition for quite some time.
0: Thank you, Steve. Jody, let's now turn to the actual results of the study starting with the primary endpoint of mean change in A1c from baseline to week 26.
2: You bet, Jim. Patients treated with the rebelsis 7-milligram dose showed an A1c reduction of 1.0% from baseline to week 26, while those treated with rebelsis 14 milligrams showed an A1c reduction of 1.3% from baseline to week 26. These A1C reductions for treatment with Rebelsis were both superior to the A1C reduction for patients treated with Genuvia 100 milligrams, which was 0.8%.
0: Steve, let's consider A1C goal achievement. What proportion of patients achieved an A1C of less than 7% at week 26?
1: Well, let's get into that. So the proportion of patients achieving that A1C less than 7% at 26 weeks were significantly greater for those treated with both Rebelsis 7 and 14 milligram doses compared to the Genuvia 100 milligram dose. Now, more specifically, 44% and 56% of patients treated with Rebelsis 7 and 14 milligrams respectively achieved an A1C of less than 7% at 26 weeks. In contrast, 32% of patients treated with Genuvia 100 milligrams, which is its maximum dose, Achieved an A1C less than 7% over the same period.
0: Jody, what were the results regarding change in body weight?
2: Well, Jim, both the Rebelsis 7 and 14 milligram doses were superior to Genuvia in reducing body weight from baseline to week 26. The mean change in body weight was 4.8 pounds reduction for Rebelsis 7 milligrams and 6.8 pounds reduction for Rebelsis 14 milligrams, compared to a 1.3 pound reduction for Genuvia. I should note that rebelsis is not indicated for weight loss.
0: So patients treated with rebelsis 7 mg or 14 milligrams, showed a greater reduction in A1c and body weight and were more likely to achieve an A1c of less than 7% than patients treated with Januvia at its maximum dose of 100 milligrams. Let's also consider the safety results in this study. The most frequently reported adverse reactions in this trial that occurred in 5% or more of Rebelsis-treated patients on any dose were nausea, diarrhea, nasopharyngitis, vomiting, headache, decreased appetite, upper respiratory tract infection, hypertension, back pain, urinary tract infection, influenza, and diabetic retinopathy. Patients discontinuing rebelsis, 7mg or 14mg, due to adverse reactions, which were primarily GI-related, were 5.8% or 11.6%, respectively. Let's talk more about the practical insights after reviewing the trial data. Let me ask you, in the past, have you prescribed genuvia for some of your adult patients with type 2 diabetes who are inadequately controlled on metformin, since it's a fairly common choice among clinicians. Should you consider rebelsis as an appropriate medication for these patients? What insights do the results of the trial provide regarding patients who are really in need of treatment intensification who are not at goal with the treatment choices that have been made for them? Steve, what about yourself?
1: Well, this is a complex question, but maybe I can make it easier to understand. Yes, we have adult patients with type 2 diabetes who are uncontrolled on metformin for whom we've prescribed Januvia. Because diabetes is a progressive condition, it may get worse in time. Even if you do everything correct, and our patients on metformin may need intensification of therapy, the data we just reviewed showed superiority with rebelsis over Januvia in multiple clinical endpoints. We saw superior A1C reduction. We saw a superior ability to get A1C below 7%, which is not always the goal for all patients, but it is a goal that most EMRs and metrics are trying to achieve in the right patient population. And there is potential weight loss with rebelsis. Although I would like to remind you that rebelsis is not indicated for weight loss.
0: What other data for rebelsis do you consider when determining whether it would be appropriate for a patient inadequately controlled on metformin?
1: When thinking about which patient I would deem appropriate for rebelsis, I do consider the fact that no dose adjustments are recommended for patients with different degrees of hepatic impairment or for patients with renal impairment, including in stage renal disease. As a reminder, there have been post-marketing reports of acute kidney injury and worsening of chronic renal failure, which may sometimes require hemodialysis in patients treated with GLP-1 receptor agonists, including semaglutide. Be sure to monitor renal function when initiating or increasing doses of Rebelsis in patients reporting severe adverse gastrointestinal reactions. So another data set I would consider for appropriate adult patients with type two diabetes who are inadequately controlled on metformin is the cardiovascular safety data which Rebelsis has described in its label. There have been no clinical studies establishing conclusive evidence of macrovascular risk reduction with rebelsis. Rebelsis safety was evaluated in a cardiovascular outcomes trial. The trial was an event-driven, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial that included 3,183 patients at high cardiovascular risk, which included patients age 50 and older with established cardiovascular disease or chronic kidney disease, or patients age 60 and older with cardiovascular risk factors. Patients were randomized to Rebelsis 14 mg once daily or placebo, both in addition to standard of care to evaluate non-inferiority of the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint, Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events, or MACE, was the time to first occurrence of the three-part composite outcome, which included cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction and non-fatal stroke. Non-inferiority to placebo was established over the median observation time of 16 months. The proportion of patients who experienced at least one MACE was 3.8%. That's roughly 61 out of 1,591 patients for the Rebelsis 14 milligrams and 4.8%, which is roughly 76 out of 1,592 patients for the placebo arm. Rebelsis demonstrated cardiovascular safety with no increased risk of MACE.
0: Thanks, Steve. Jody, what about yourself?
2: Steve, you brought up some great points. Dr. Gavin, in regards to your question, have you prescribed Januvia for some of your adult patients with type 2 diabetes who have inadequately controlled A1C when on metformin? And are those often patients where we could consider Rebelsis? My answer is yes, based on the trial results. Rebelsis demonstrated superior A1C reductions and more patients achieved A1Cs of less than 7% as compared to those on Januvia. Finally, while Rebelsis is not indicated as a weight loss drug, it demonstrated superior weight loss in the head-to-head trial versus Januvia. Also, I think one of the best things is that because we come from these busy practices and because the guidelines are telling us to consider utilizing GLP-1 receptor agonist therapy as monotherapy if metformin cannot be used or tolerated, or as part of dual or triple therapy with metformin in the appropriate individuals, rebelsis fits beautifully in the fact that it is a once-daily oral medication like Genuvia. So this is definitely something that we can fit into practices and could help get patients to goal as the data shows.
0: So it seems very clear based on what both of you have said, and certainly this is true of my own experiences as well, is that we often have patients who are currently being treated with one or more oral medications for glycemic control. The reasons for making those medication selections are multiple and should start with efficacy. But clearly, those patients will arrive at a point where they are not getting to the goals we desire for them. Their quality metrics aren't being achieved. Their A1Cs are not at goal. And clearly, to keep patients on such a regimen, in the face of clear urgency for intensification, it is to be complicit in therapeutic inertia. And when we see data like we just described with the Rebelsis versus Januvia clinical trial, we should consider Rebelsis as an effective treatment option that allows patients to stay on an oral medication, to try to move people in the direction that we all aspire to with respect to their A1C treatment goals. So I think the good news here is that the more we help educate the healthcare provider community about the options that they have available for glycemic control, the more they may help alleviate some aspects of therapeutic inertia. For more information and to access the Rebelsus prescribing information including boxed warning, please visit RebelsisPro.com or see your Novo Nordisk representative. So let me, with that, say thank you, Steve, and thank you, Jody, for your time today and for joining me here in this podcast. And to our audience, this concludes this episode of what type 2 diabetes therapy have you considered for your patients after metformin? I'm your host, Jim Gavin. Thank you for joining us today on the 411 on a GLP-1.